you know, we're going to play Florida State. Can we match their body language? For sure. Can we match their focus? For sure. Can we match their self-talk? For sure. Even if it was Team USA. Why? Because those are all controllable. They're not intangibles. I don't believe intangibles isn't even as a word that should be in your vocabulary as a coach because it's controllables. An intangible might be you're six foot two or you're five foot two. Like that's a non-controllable. Controllables is where you want to put all of your focus as a coach because that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck. All right, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are thrilled to talk about making that postseason push with you on everybody's mind right now. They can see the days closing to an end on their calendar, and everybody has that goal of of a championship. So for the coaches that have it within their sights right now, I know that this is going to be such a valuable asset to them. So thank you again for, for joining us today. Oh, it's a privilege. Anytime I get the opportunity to share some of my experience with the great softball coaches out there, I'd like to jump at the opportunity. So thank you for the opportunity. No doubt. We are happy to have you. Well, let's get rolling. Hey, how do you deal with expectation? If your team is supposed to win versus supposed to lose coming into the postseason, how are, how are some ways that you can deal with that? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that eliminate the supposed to, eliminate the win, eliminate the lose, and, and focus on competitiveness. And anytime you step onto a softball field, you've got a 50-50 chance of winning. Why? Because there's only two teams. And we know that especially in the postseason, anything can happen on any given day. And the best team never wins. It's always the team that plays the best. So how do you deal with expectation? You talk about execution. If your team is supposed to win or they're supposed to lose, eliminate that and focus on what do you need to do to perform your best. Because the only way that you're going to give yourself the best chance to win is if you perform your best. So focus on what matters, performing your best, and what you need to do to do that. You know, the NCAA sometimes will mandate specific times of practice, causing changes in routine. How do you keep athletes focused when they can become so driven by that familiarity of routine? Well, it's a great question. And I think the key piece to understand about routine is that inside of the routine, there's always a start and an end point. And there's various routines within the routine. I think a lot of people say, well, what our games are, we're usually playing our games at seven o'clock. Seven o'clock is when our routine starts and it's based by time. Well, sometimes you can't dictate the time. There's games that start in Oklahoma City after midnight. I think LSU played a game last year, you know, or close to midnight. And you have to understand, well, the routine can be a couple of things. It can be dictated by time. So an hour before the first pitch, you know, we might be doing a certain stretching routine or, or hitting routine, something like that. But also, like 20 minutes before the first pitch, you're going to know when you're going to play 20 minutes before the first pitch. A game ends in extra innings on a walk-off home run. you got to get a quick turnaround. you got to get ready to go. So you have your show-and-go routine. And one of the things that you want to do leading into the postseason is practice those routines. So someday before practice, you know, let them know, hey, we've got 15 minutes from the time we walk out of the locker room to get it warmed up, to get it going, and we're going right into an inner squad to simulate what might happen if we get caught in a rain delay or if we get caught in a game where there's a walk-off and all we have to go and, and get it going real quick. So you have to anticipate adversity and you have to practice those routines so that even if you said, hey, we got 10 minutes before we get to go, you've got to get it ready and, and practice that. Just like what great coaches will do is, you know, Lonnie Almeida at Florida State, where it doesn't rain a ton, she practices this. Middle of practice, 
85 degrees out and sunny, she'll pull her team in the locker room for 45 minutes and say, we're simulating a rain delay right now. And then they'll go back out and they'll have to get it going again. And it's just part of that preparation process that I think a lot of people, especially the inexperienced coaches that maybe haven't uh, been there before and haven't experienced that, they can speed up that learning curve by listening to these podcasts and, and talking with other great coaches out there about what do you do to prepare your team for the postseason and get some of those strategies like the ones that we just talked about. You know, the real question might be, does Lonnie turn on the sprinklers? Well, it's funny, so you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to ask her about that. See if she just lets those bad boys run. Well, <laughs> here's a good one: is I was working with Arizona State softball a few years ago, and they were getting ready to go into a a, a final series with Oregon to win the the Pac-12, determine the Pac-12 champion. And Dallas Escobedo was that was the pitcher for Arizona State, and the forecast was to rain in Oregon that weekend, and it never rains in Tempe, Arizona. So in the bullpen, we took the sprinkler. And we turned it on in the middle of the bullpen, and it went and it hit her half the time, and then hit, uh, you know, Am- Amber who was catching half the time, and it just went back and forth and back and forth. And they had wet wet softballs, and they're dealing with getting hit with water in the face as she's trying to throw a pitch, and she had to throw a normal bullpen with that sprinkler on to practice the adversity because it was going to rain in Oregon. And I'd like to sit here and say that that worked for Arizona State, and they went up there and won the Pac-12 championship that year. Unfortunately, they didn't. Um, but it's practicing that adversity that's going to make the biggest difference in your success in your program because you've been there before. Definitely not for lack of preparation. That's for sure. You know, you hear a lot about inexperience this time of year. Oh, they've, they're new. They have all these new starters. They haven't been there. How much does inexperience or experience play a role in the pursuit of a championship? I think as much as you let it. If you look at the Men's College World Series last year, Coastal Carolina was the first time they made it to the College World Series, and they won the whole thing. And they had to come back and beat TCU twice, who had been there for their third year in a row. And I had worked with both programs and can tell you that, you know, they're both really good. And and the the coaching staffs of both programs prepared their teams really well to go to the postseason. But I don't think they either of them talked about, hey, like TCU's not saying we've been here three years in a row and now is our time. And Coastal Carolina's not saying we've never been here. We can't win this thing. They're focused on the execution. So I think when you talk about experience, there's two types of experience, expensive and inexpensive. An expensive experience is you going to the Oklahoma City and losing because you're not anticipating what's going to happen. You haven't asked the right questions. You haven't done your research and homework and prepared in separation, as we know, is in preparation. The coach who seeks inexpensive experience, listening to this podcast, contacting coaches like Coach Candrea, um, you know, who, the great coaches that have Sue Anquist, that have been to Oklahoma City and have probably seen it all, contacting them and asking them what they know now, they wish they knew then, their first trip to Oklahoma City, they're getting that inexpensive experience. And that inexpensive experience is going to help speed up their learning curve and help them to prepare for and anticipate things that they never would have thought of because they haven't lived it themselves. You know, something else you hear a lot this time of year is she's just trying so hard. She tries too hard. What does that mean, and and how do you fix that? I mean, I think what you want to do is you want to do the same thing. You want to do the same thing you've done all year. If you're going to make it to the postseason, and my mentor, Dr. Ken Revisa, who kind of created the mental game of softball out at Cal State Fullerton, now with the Chicago Cubs, he would say, when you get into the postseason, are you going to step up? And if you're going to step up in the postseason, why haven't you been stepping up all year? So the key is to not do anything different, but to just trust what you've done all year. And you might find out that that's not good enough, and then you've got to try something else next year. 
but you can't just change going into a postseason and step up. Trying to step up is the worst thing you can do because as athletes, we do not step up. We do not rise to the occasion. We sink. We sink to our levels of training and habits. So I think the teams that make it to Oklahoma City, yeah, they might have a talent gap. There's a talent gap, I think, in the SEC and other conferences around the country for sure. But they're all good. They're all good enough to win. It comes down to who's the most well-prepared, who's had the best training probably all year. So I think when people try to try more, I think that's a big mistake. I think they actually probably need to just try a little bit less because there's going to be more emotion. There's going to be more adrenaline. They just got to do what they do and, and focus on not the try, but to compete. I think another question you, you get a lot going into the postseason is, you know, we're playing the, we're playing the number one ranked team in the country. They got 50 wins, and you know I think Florida State right now getting ready to, to play. They're like 38-1-1, one one, right? So if you're getting ready to go play Florida State, um, what are you going to tell your team? And I work with Florida State, so that's why they're, that's why they're on, their, on my mind right now, and they're on TV here in about an hour, so I'm super excited to watch them. But if you were going to play the Seminoles, what are you going to say to your team? You're going to say, hey, let's just do what we do. Let's go compete. And if you're facing Jessica Burroughs, who's like 20-0 and one of the top pitchers in the country, you know, she's going to get her strikeouts. She's going to get her. She's going to, she's going to dominate some of your hitters. And what you've got to let them know is that, Hey, regardless of how you feel confidence, let's eliminate confidence from the equation and let's focus on competitiveness. You see, I think competitiveness trumps confidence because confidence is a feeling and you can't always control how you feel, but you can always control how you act. So what if you want your team to act and compete with more confidence, Give them this three-step, what I call the three-step process to creating a confidence. And those three steps are your body language, your focus, and your self-talk. Your body language, how you carry yourself, your focus, what you're focusing on, not how you feel, but what you're trying to do, and your self-talk about what am I trying to do? Pound the inside part of the plate. What am I trying to do? Look for something up and out of, you know, up and over the outer third of the plate. Telling yourself what you want to do specifically. Those three things, body language, focus, and self-talk, create your state. And your state is either a state of confidence in a state, what I would call a green light state that's positive and helping you, or it's going to be a red light state that's going to crush you. So you've got to master your states and start talking about, hey, when we go into a game, you know, we're going to play Florida State. Can we match their body language? For sure. Can we match their focus? For sure. Can we match their self-talk? For sure. Even if it was Team USA. Why? Because those are all controllable. They're not intangibles. I don't believe intangibles isn't even as a word that should be in your vocabulary as a coach because it's controllables. An intangible might be you're six foot two or you're five foot two. Like that's a non controllable. Controllables is where you want to put all of your focus as a coach because that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck. You know, you hit on a major topic that a lot of coaches will be dealing with right now, and that's sticking with the routine and what got you where you are or choosing to address new issues, potentially create that postseason mantra. You think of the Chicago Cubs and, and some of those things. What are your thoughts on postseason motivational themes and any changes that might occur from the regular season routine? And then specifically, how do we guard against that or, or make sure that we're not causing an adverse effect for our teams? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways to get it done. I mean, I've worked with, oh, I don't know, maybe if you looked at the top 25, probably 10 or 15 of those teams have gone through this program. Currently this year, I'm working with Florida State and LSU, and they're different programs. So there's a lot of ways to get it done. In my experience, the, the best way to get it done is to be consistent. So if you have a motto for the fall, and then you have a motto or a theme to help sharpen your mindset for preseason, and then maybe 
out of conference and then in conference, then you would do it again in the postseason. But to have no motto or theme all year and then try to drop one on your team going into postseason, I think makes it different. And you want to try to keep it as similar as possible. It's going to be different already because of the adrenaline, because of the emotion, because of the excitement, because of the TV, and because they're going to probably be playing when they're not in school, which is a little bit different in terms of their routine, but should be easier because they have more time to sleep, more time to recover, more time to get to where they need to be. So it should be a decreased stress time rather than increased stress time. But I think you've got to just keep it consistent. And if you're going to use a motto, which I think mottos are great. The teams I work with will try to have mottos for different points of the year. We try to break the year up almost into four quarters, like you might say, of a of like a football game, right? Where one quarter is the fall. One quarter would be um, like the time from when the fall ends until well, January starts. A quarter would be January until the end of non-conference. Another quarter is conference. And then like our overtime is postseason. So we kind of have a different focus for each of those each of those areas, and it really helps chop up the season into you know four quarters and an overtime, so that you can kind of revisit and really give your players. Especially, I've seen it work real well where you know let's say in non-conference schedule, a player's struggling. She's normally hitting four hundred, and she's hitting two fifty. And you kind of clear the slate, wipe it mentally, and let them go get it again, and they turn it around in in the conference. So. Uh, I think just being consistent with it is is a great idea. I'm a big fan of the mottos and the themes to sharpen the focus and raise the awareness, but you got to do that all the time. It can't just be a one-time motivational speaker come in and try to get us pumped up rah-rah before the postseason. I mean, I do that, and I just don't think it, it has the same stickiness to it and the longevity to it that doing something consistently over time does. You probably already hit on this from the mental approach side with the controllables, but what mental approaches have you seen with teams that are most likely to lead to the successful outcomes that you've discussed? I think it all comes down to, number one, you've got to be in control yourself before you can control your performance. And when you get into the postseason, there's just more adversity. There's more pressure because of the cameras. And if you lose, you go home and you don't get to play with your friends anymore, et cetera. You know, your, your sisters, your family, your teammates, you may not for the seniors and they may never see them again. So there's all that that comes into it, plus the excitement of the, of the pursuit of Oklahoma City. So I think the mental and the emotional management skills of being able to be in control of yourself before you can control your performance is huge. And that takes some time to develop. And that's where I think the programs get the best benefit out of me that bring me in in the fall early to work with their teams and their coaching staff. And then we back them up with Skype sessions, you know, at least one a month for the whole, for the rest of the, of the entire season until next summer. And that's that spaced repetition that they need to continue to move the ball forward. I think the other part of that being in control of yourself piece is having something to go to when the garbage hits the fan and the garbage is always going to hit the fan. And that thing to go to is your routine. It's your deep breath. It's your self-talk. It's your ability to go one pitch at a time. It's your ability to have something to go to to flush, as Ken Revisa would say, flush the adversity. Well, that thing you go to to flush the adversity is a three-step release. You do something physical, like batting gloves or clean the box or knock dirt off your spikes, something physical while taking a big cleansing deep breath and then having a self-talk to yourself where you might just say, hey, next pitch, or you got this, or let's move on, or so what, something along those lines. So those mental skills, I believe you've got to have in place, built from the fall, practiced through the fall, practiced through January, through your season, so that when you get to the postseason, that's what you can trust. That's what you can rely on.
we're not too far removed from March Madness and the excitement that always goes along with that. What characteristics make up a Cinderella team and how are those teams able to accomplish what they do? Ooh, I don't know if I saw any of the basketball tournament. I have to admit that I'm a, uh, I, I try to avoid TV unless of course it's a team that I'm, uh, that I'm working with. So I can't, I'm, I, the North Carolina win. I think they did. That's terrible. I should know that. I think they, they won, did. They, they did. My, my bracket. I had the Zags. Oh, I, had the, you know, yeah. I was so close. I still won. still won our office pool, but. How about Mississippi State knocking off UConn? I mean, when you want to talk well, about yeah, a Cinderella yeah, like that, exactly. It's, I mean, let's talk about I mean, any any Cinderella team, any team that that comes in, and you know, and I loved what you said earlier about you can you can compete with all those controllables. You can do everything as well as they do, and and I think that that is definitely a point to this. But what else do you see in those teams? The Coastal Carolina, yeah. you know, what do you what do you see in those teams that you just know there's something special brewing? Just just a a high, high level of competitiveness, a high, high level of energy and enjoyment for what they're doing and who they're doing it with. And I think that when you have that, and it's not that UConn didn't have that, you know, Mississippi State had that. It's not that TCU didn't have that in Omaha last year. In Coastal Carolina did, they both have it. But I think you see that maybe a little bit more in those those quote-unquote Cinderella teams because I think they, they go into a game going, hey, Let's eliminate the outcome. Mississippi State was probably a 50-point underdog or a 40-point underdog to, to UConn. But that's why you play the game. And the best team never wins. UConn's better than Mississippi State. The best team never wins. It's the team who plays the best. And that night, Mississippi State probably competed harder and executed better. And I believe that's what all sport comes down to is who's going to compete and who's going to execute. Look at the miracle on ice in 1980. The Russians were better. The U.S. executed and the U.S. competed probably a little bit harder because they had nothing to lose. And when you go into a game and you've got nothing to lose, everything to win, and you say, you know what, let's let go of the outcome because we can't control it anyway, and let's get immersed in the moment, let's lock arms and do this together, and let's win pitches and compete at a high level, then you get championship-level performance because they surrender to and they let go of the outcome. And the outcome creates the pressure. The process unlocks your pleasure. You know, the postseason can catch up with a lot of people physically. You know, we play a ton of games in a very short amount of time. What have you seen coaches do that has impressed you with the amount of rest they give players leading up to that postseason and any differences in the way they potentially structure practices leading up to the postseason? Oh, what a great question. I had this conversation with, uh, with somebody this morning. And they were saying, hey, you know, you're getting ready for an Ironman. I got an Ironman race coming up here, uh, 140.6 miles in about 10 days. And they said, you know, you, 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 you look like on your Snapchat, you've been kind of tired. And I'm like, well, I am kind of tired. Like, are you overtrained? And I said, that doesn't exist. You don't get overtrained. What you get is you get under-recovered. And I'm under-recovered right now. And I know that teams going into the postseason, they can get under-recovered, meaning you know, they're, they're up late watching other games. They're nervous and they got that nervous energy so they can't sleep. So they're missing the recovery. They get out of their routine because the school year ends and now they're in a postseason where there's no school. So the routine changes. And anytime the routine changes, fall ball into that period between fall ball and the end of the fall semester where there's no school or there's no softball, but you have school, postseason, you know, all those things. Those changes in the schedule can create 
a new opportunity for the routine and the best coaches will anticipate those and they'll talk about what their routines are going to be before they get to those time periods. So the best things I've seen from a recovery standpoint are always have food in the dugout, ice baths after the game. Usually, I mean, I've seen teams that will come back to the hotel, the kids are in their uniform and like in the hotel conference room, they've got, you know, the tubs like with the ice and water in them and they're in their uniform. They, they go to their room, they get a towel, they come down in uni, they get in the water and they're sitting there like real scrubbing some of the dirt out of the uniform in the water and they go back up in their towel. They put their wet uniform in a bag, they give it to the equipment guy to wash and then they're, uh, you know, in their shower and they're doing their thing and they're, they're getting into their routine. But the ice bath is huge. Uh, I've even seen teams bring massage therapists, which is big. I've seen teams that at night in the hotel after a game, after the ice bath, after they eat, they're, they're doing a foam roll session together in a conference room, doing a yoga piece, maybe a 20-minute light stretch, and then they're often going to go through a deep relaxation, meditation, and imagery, either with me if I'm there or I make an audio for them that they play together in the hotel room. It's like a 25, 30-minute process. They go to bed. They let them sleep in as late as possible. This mentality that coaches have, oh, we're going to get our kids up at 7 a.m. and feed them breakfast, and they have to eat breakfast because they got to be mentally tough, is, it doesn't fit, doesn't work. Ray Tanner, baseball coach at South Carolina, now the AD there, who won you know, back-to-back national championships and played for a third one, um, he would let his guys sleep in as late as possible because he knew how sleep-deprived they were. When they got up, they went and had their meal you know, that they could get in the hotel or wherever. So I think letting your athletes sleep in as late as possible, having them get up and get their food that way, uh, and doing the recovery at night, those are going to be some of the keys to helping them feel more energized, feel more juiced up during the postseason because you don't overtrain you under recover softball is not a physically demanding sport like soccer might be, or, um, you know, even women's basketball, the amount of running that they're doing. I mean, softball is not that demanding on your body. We just under recover and college athletes by nature are terrible at that. I think those are all great points and definitely something that more and more people are becoming aware of. So I think that will really hit home with a lot of coaches right now. And you have those players that, that don't want to recover you know, they, they don't see the value in it. So I think being able to teach them the benefit is huge as well. well you know, it's boring and they don't want to do it, you know, but that's, that's the difference between a champion and a, and, a, and a chump, right? Is the champion is the one who does what they don't want to do. The chump is the one who does only what they feel like doing. And then they, then they, then they lose. So I think that if you can, you know, you've got to train them to do that. But again, you know, you're, you're foam rolling an ice bath and doing all that stuff now in April, not for tomorrow. You're doing that for like a month from now to try to get the recovery in. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Hey, when you look at role players and the impact that role players can have in our game, what are, what are some of the ways that role players stay honed in on their opportunities in order to make the best of those in that pinch hit and that relief pitching appearance in one of those situations that can come out of the blue. You know, the thing I love about the, the term like the role player, right, is every coach would say, hey, you got to accept your role for the team. I would tell an athlete never to do that. I would say execute your role for your team. Execute your role for the team because it's what you're asked to do. Execute your role for the team because that's what your teammates are counting on you to do. And if your role that day you're asked to execute is to keep a chart, be the best chart keeper in college softball. If it's to bring juice in the dugout, bring juice in the dugout the best that you possibly can. If it's to get the ball and go in the circle and pound the zone, then you do that. If it's come out of the bullpen or start or pinch hit or play shortstop, that's what you do because you're asked to execute your role for the team. 
So I think the role players, the pinch runners, the dugout energy, um, you know, the sign people on the bench that pick signs. I mean, I've, I work with college softball programs in the last five years that have had players on their team that literally the only thing they brought to the, to the team during the game was focusing on the other team and trying to pick signs. And I'll tell you that there's games that they probably won because that player was on the team. And it's just part of the game. It's part of what people do to get a competitive edge. I mean, there's there's big money in softball. And I mean, people are going to do whatever they need to do to find a competitive advantage. Um, so I think the role players are huge. And the, the term I like to use and give to them is what's called war dogs. And in, in ancient you know, war times, the war dog was used to you know, go bite a horse in the hamstring and pull it down so that they could get the enemy off of the horse and onto the ground for battle. And nowadays in war, you know, dogs will go out and to, to sniff mines and occasionally they give their life by, by stepping on a mine so that they can save the lives of soldiers maybe coming behind in a car or in a tank, something like that. So those war dogs that are sacrificing, or I shouldn't say sacrificing, because I don't believe we make sacrifices to be great for our team. I believe we make decisions. And the war dogs in your program that are making decisions to do whatever it takes, to do whatever they're asked, to execute their role for the team, those players, you cannot put a price tag on them because they are priceless during the season and in the postseason. You know, I can think immediately when you say that a couple of kids have had play for me in different programs that when they come up with the, the pick of the change up, you celebrate them and you celebrate them so much. What are some ways that you see coaches and teams rally around those sometimes undervalued roles that, that players do execute extremely well? One of the things that Beth Torina does at LSU that I think is brilliant is after practice, they'll stand in a circle and she will ask all the players, okay, you know, this is your time to brag on your teammates. Who saw someone in our program today living Tigers? And Tigers is an acronym for their championship culture. Florida State's is FSAC, F-S-A-C-C. So when they have this championship culture and they have these core principles, I think Tigers is trust in or, uh toughness, integrity, uh, grit, excellence, relentless, and selfless. They will brag on their teammates about how they saw it. So they would say, you know, hey, Savannah on the dugout today, she picked up that change up, sent it to coach, coach tipped it to me in the box. I got the, I got the, the double to start the rally. If it wasn't for Savannah, we wouldn't have even come close to starting that rally and win this game. Savannah was selfless getting that sign and relentless at making sure that we got it. So they tie the action of those war dogs back to the core values of their program. And I think when you recognize people in the program living the principles of your program, it really brings that championship culture to another level. And I think the best programs out there intentionally create that culture and then build it by recognizing it when it is modeled by their players. I think those are great examples. Thank you for sharing those. The pressure that comes with the postseason is something that coaches try to emulate and simulate and as much as they can. How do you think that players can be successful in practicing pressure? What does that look like? Well, I think you got to practice pressure year-round. I think when you... What I see often in college softball is way too much drill work. Is you go to a practice and it's drill, 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 drill instead of compete. And there's two types of training. Right? We don't do softball practice. We do softball training. Why? It's a little bit more intense. 
has more of a purpose. Trainings always have missions. Navy SEALs don't practice, they train and they have missions. So we're going to have training missions. And one of our training missions might be today, we're going to compete. And in every practice, there's going to be a form of competition. Competing in a simple round of batting practice. You're going to get four rounds of five swings. And you've got to execute 15 out of your 20 swings with quality contact or you lose. If you execute 15 or more, you win. And every day there's a win and a loss given next to your name. And it's tracked all through the fall, tracked all through the spring. And I've had coaches go, well, our kids get upset and they cry when we make them compete like that. And I go, well, then they're going to, and if you don't, that's exactly what you want. You want them to get on that edge of the comfort zone. You want them to, to get upset when they fail. Because then you can use that as a learning opportunity and a time to train them because when they get in the postseason, they're going to fail at times. There's going to be pressure. And if you wait for them to try to figure it out there with your fingers crossed, praying in the corner of the dugout, hoping that your players show up, it's not going to happen. You have to put them in the pressure cooker. You have to put them in the cauldron of competitiveness every single day. There's a winner. There's a loser. Does that mean there has to be a consequence where they run? No. Winning and losing is enough consequence as it is. But I think one of the things that I've seen is understanding the difference between we're training for technique and we're training for competitiveness. And I think there's too much training for technique, not enough training for competitiveness, meaning there's too much drill work, not enough inner squad. Not enough. We're throwing a 25-pitch bullpen, all four of you pitchers, and here's the pitch sequence we're going to throw. And if you execute 18 out of 25 pitches, you win. If you don't, you lose. And if you lose... You're gonna, you know, do you're gonna you're gonna pick one of these five uh, consequences because you lost, or you can even flip it around and go. If you win, I love this one. If you win, you get to condition. If you win, if you get 18 out of 25, you get to go run five sprints because it's a privilege to win, and it's a privilege to get in great shape, and it's a privilege to do more work than your than your opponents, and it's a privilege to do more work than your teammates because that's helping you get better. So when you win, you get to do more work. And if you lose, you just, you just get to go home. You get to, after practice, you get to leave the field and go home while your teammates get the condition because they won and it pays to be a winner. But they've got to practice that pressure. I think other things you can do is put hitters at the plate and give them a 1-2 count. Pitchers in the bullpen, 2-1 count, and they got to pitch out of it. You can play loud, distracting music during practice. Um, Skip Burtman, former baseball coach at LSU, did something I thought was awesome. In softball, generally, when you travel, you bring everybody because you can because the rosters are smaller. Um, but let's say you've got four or five maybe managers or four or five players that are redshirting or, or redshirting or that are hurt that are not tra- traveling with you. Well, you put each one of them on a team and you inter-squad somehow batting practice, some sort of drill, and the team that wins, they get to bring the manager or the injured player that's on their team on the road trip. So now you're playing for human beings go on a road trip with you, that's going to create a tremendous amount of pressure. And that's the type of pressure that we get when we get to Oklahoma City. So why don't we seek it and bring it every day? You know, when pressure comes, you're looking for players that are the most clutch. And I do like what you said earlier about athletes. We don't step up. We we go back to where our training level is. I think that that is um, something that everybody should keep in mind. But it seems like you always have someone on your team that's just a little more clutch than somebody else, and you're hoping they get up in certain circumstances. How do coaches determine who that most clutch player is? Is there a way that you can increase someone's grittiness, their ability to succeed in those pressure situations? 
a great question. And I know a lot of coaches have a lot of different philosophies on that and a lot of different strategies to help motivate their players, you know, from, from talking to them, giving them a pat on the back, getting in their face before they're on the, on the next circle, going to home plate to get them into the right state, right? I think being clutch is a state, right? So we talked about a state is a product of your body language focus and self-talk. So knowing your players, and it all comes back to relationships, we're all in the relationship industry as coaches, knowing your players well enough to be able to, quote unquote, press the right buttons, or should I say, communicate the right way to get them into the state they need to be in to be able to go perform at the best of their ability. And if you haven't practiced pressure, situ- if the most pressure packed situation that they get into is down one run, three, two, bases loaded, Oklahoma City, if that's the most pressure packed situation they get into all year, I don't think you've trained them well enough. The training, that, that pressure pack situation is happening every day in the weight room. It's happening in practice. It's happening in your team building activities. That when they get to softball, they're like, we've done way harder than this. This is just a game. Let's go get it. It's that perspective building. And if you're in Oklahoma City, bringing your team to the memorial, the Oklahoma City bombing memorial, I mean, that's going to help build some perspective that I think is going to help decrease some of that pressure. Uh, doing activities like the compared to what poster that I talk about in my book, the mental mental conditioning for softball, um, the vision boards, all those things are going to help build that perspective. That's going to help players, I believe, be more clutch because again, they're going to surrender and let go of the outcome and focus on what do I need to do right now? Pitch. I need to step out of the box. I need to wipe away that last pitch. I need to look at third base for the sign. I need to look at the E and Easton on my bat. I need to take a deep breath. Touch the plate, touch the plate, bat out in front, take a breath, bring the bat back, and I'm telling myself my plan of outer third, and then they're in. So they're using their skills to help them to be in the moment, which is, I think, all being clutch is, is execution in the moment, and anyone can do it at any given time. It comes down to trusting your training. Are those the same practices that you use to help players understand there's a difference between pressure and opportunity? Pressure is a privilege. I mean, there's pressure. There's when you think about it, that's the perspective building. Is is there pressure in softball? I mean, we're not talking about lives here. We're playing a game. So let's not let the pressure of the situation override the pleasure of the situation. Is there pressure? Sure, but pressure is perceived. I mean, pressure is real. You feel it because you care. You want to help get your team to win, but it's also perceived pressure. In that when you can step back and go, hey, there's 10 million people in China that don't even know that, that Oklahoma City exists, it kind of puts it in perspective for you, but, but that has to be built all year. So I think teaching them all year, right? this is a system. I mean, I'm sorry, the mental game, and I know a lot of people tra- treat it this way, the mental game is not a magic pill that you're going to swallow going into the postseason and it's going to make a big impact in your program. I mean, if you have no mental game and you were to say, bring me or someone in before the season, it might help a little bit, but man, it's a, it's a systematic approach that you're doing year round. I mean, it's like I'm a part of the coaching staff in those programs and I'm constantly training those coaches to become more ultimately hoping to train my, train them so they don't need me anymore so that they can become the masters of the mental game to run it in their program. But you've got to talk about pressure is a privilege and where pressure comes from or where anxiety comes from is excitement without the breath. So you got to take that breath to get you in the present moment. Take that breath to go back and control yourself and just focus on winning that pitch. 
Don't win a game, win a pitch. For the coaches listening to this, please talk about this with your teams. Do not win the game, win the pitch. And if you win the pitch, win the pitch, win the pitch, repeat, do it again, you know what's going to take care of itself? The game. If you watch Florida State, number one in the country, versus Florida, number three in the country, tonight on TV, and they'll play again at another point during the season, the team that's going to win is probably the team that wins most of the pitches during that game. And in big games, playoff games, games like this one tonight, it's going to come down to two or three pitches that make the difference in the outcome of that game. But you never know which of those two or three pitches it's going to be, so you have to play them all as if it's going to be that pitch one pitch at a time. You know, most of this has been driven toward players, making our players better. And, and that's our goal. That's our job. That's what we want to do. But we also have to look at, at ourselves as coaches because I think that a lot of coaches can inadvertently and probably completely unaware change their own approach for the postseason. So how do coaches take a look at themselves and what they're doing maybe differently right now than they were doing a few weeks ago when everything was firing on all cylinders. I mean, I think the worst thing you can do as a coach is surround yourself with yes people and not have the humility to ask your team and ask your assistants for help and for feedback. And there's a lot of ego in coaching, right? There's a lot of ego in sport. There's ego in softball. There's ego in everywhere. And ego is the enemy because when you have an ego and you're not humble to ask for help, when you're not humble to ask for someone's opinion, you only see your perspective. And if you sat down with a staff and asked those five coaches the same question, you might get five different answers. Well, as a head coach, you want to be able to get that information and then you have to make a decision moving forward. But I think sometimes what the best coaches have done, and I've done this with softball coaches, is they ask me, they say, hey, Brian, I want you to put a video camera on me. Because a lot of times I go to games and I videotape players' routines. And after the game, I go break down their, their routines with them so they get to see that and learn about if they're finishing their breath, if they're rushing their routine, if they're releasing when they get in red, yellow lights. But rarely, and I always make it an option, rarely do I have a head coach say to me, hey, videotape me during the game because I want to see what my body language looks like. I want to see if I get out of control. I want to see how I handle the shortstop that lets the ball go through her legs to give up two runs in the sixth and put us down by one. So what I'll do is videotape those coaches for the whole game and then take that video of them and kind of embed it inside of the game tape like a picture-in-picture picture, so they can see their body language and reaction exactly a live time at what happens during the game, which is easy enough to do nowadays with technology. And it's fascinating what that does for coaches because they just don't have the awareness because they don't see themselves all the time, right? And then we're able to get into the conversation of, you know, hey, what, what have you been doing all year and how are you going to be consistent with bringing that into the postseason? But I think, unfortunately, a lot of coaches, they don't address the mental game. They don't address having some sort of systematic approach to training the mental and emotional side of the game during the season and then they get to the postseason they think they need to address it going into the big game and all they're doing is really probably working against themselves instead of just continuing to do what they do now there are some coaches out there that don't do anything with a mental game during the season and don't do anything with a mental game in the postseason and i think that's better approach than doing nothing with a mental game during the season and then trying to do something in the postseason it comes down to consistency you know i'm sure we have some coaches that are listening right now about to make their first postseason run, they're they're excited, they're nervous. What advice would you give to that that young coach, maybe a new head coach, that is that looking at this time and hoping just to maximize their opportunity? Enjoy the journey. 
Nolan Ryan, who, who pitched in Major League Baseball for like 21 years, I think, he went to the World Series one time in his first year. And it may even have been he went to the postseason one time in his first year. Because winning is an outcome that you cannot control, you participate in. It's difficult to get to the postseason. So I think as a young coach going into it, enjoy it. You know, talk to your team about, hey, we're going to have, you know, I think sometimes you get, you know, the coach who's too cool that goes, hey, pff, we're not going to be nervous. Pff, we're not going to have, you know, we're not, we're going to go out there. We're going to have great confidence. We're going to get it done. It's like, no, let's deal with the reality. We're going to be nervous. We're going to have feelings we haven't had all year, but we've got a skill set to deal with them. We're going to use how we've practiced our big body language all year. We're going to use our routine and our breath to help us go one pitch at a time and stay in the present. And we're going to focus on controlling what we can control, which is our energy and our execution. So let's look at those things and see who we need to be going into this postseason. And we need to be the same people we've been all year, which is who, fill in the blank, when we've played our best. We've done this, fill in the blank. Knowing the feelings that are going to come up in this postseason, just like we have, you know, probably during a conference tournament or during a big game in the regular season, how are we going to manage our emotions? And if they haven't trained their team all year in that, then they're, again, they're going to get beat by the team that has. If they have trained their team all year, then they got something to rely on. So I think for the young coach who hasn't done anything with a mental game, contact me after the season and let's get something going for next fall. But if you have the privilege to make it to the postseason run this year, I mean, I would say just keep doing what you're doing that got you there. It was obviously good enough to win your conference or to get an at-large bid, but if you want to take that next jump towards the national championship, you look at programs like Alabama that I worked with in 10, 11, and 12, Florida State, LSU. I've had the privilege to be with Arizona State, Oregon, um, Auburn. I mean, some of the top programs in the country, Georgia, Texas A&M. What are the things that they're doing that help give them a better chance for success. That's what they want to start building in their program day one in the fall when their athletes get on campus and they can then ride that and build off of that foundation all year. So when they get to the postseason, they can go, hey, this is the same stuff we've been talking about since day one. Let's trust it. Let's go compete. Let's have a fun ride. Brian, so much great information. I've got a page full of notes here, and I'm not even coaching a team anymore. Oh, but uh, you know, I, I love it. But hey, what's something? Anything we've missed? Anything that you're looking at, thinking, you know what? I, I got to get these coaches this information. Yeah, you know, I just think it would be like, what's the next step, right? So I think for the coaches listening to this, I want them to get this. So if you'd write this down, this is big. Is there's three steps to maximum growth, and we're all trying to grow. Right, And if you want more, you have to become more. Well, how do you become more? You grow. Well, there's, here's the three steps to maximum growth. Number one is what's called a total immersion learning experience. Going to the NFCA conference. Going to you know one of my coaches' clinics for four days. I have coaches that come to my house for a weekend, and we literally get after it for like 36 or 48 hours drinking from the fountain of the mental game of softball. That's a total immersion learning experience. Them listening to this podcast, hopefully in their car, multiple times, that's a total immersion learning experience. That's step one. Step two is called spaced repetition. They have to back that up with getting a little a lot over a consistent basis. Spaced repetition would be, let's say, I listen to this podcast and then I join my inner circle where they get an audio and a newsletter from me on the first of every month. They check out my Monday message. They go to briancane.com slash podcast, listen to the other softball podcasts where I'm interviewing Beth Tarina, Lonnie Almeida, and other great softball coaches 
that's going to be spaced repetition to help them grow. They pick out my book, Mental Game of Softball. Um, actually, we changed the title to Mental Conditioning for Softball. I'm sorry. So they pick up that book. You know, that's all spaced repetition. And then the third piece that they need is accountability to a plan. I think that's where the NFCA does such a great job. I think that's where I really help coaches is give them a game plan of what to do and implement it and then have accountability partners that you're growing with, right? It's a lot like going to the gym. If you're going to go to the gym tomorrow at 6 a.m. and you're going alone, you might hit the snooze bar and stay in. But if you're meeting me there at 6 a.m. or I'm meeting you there at 6 a.m., I'm going to be there because I'm not going to let you down. And you have to take that same approach with your growth in the mental game and have an accountability partner that you go through the digital training program with, that you listen to this podcast with. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, sent it to a buddy of mine, said, hey, listen to this, and let's talk on Friday about what you got out of it. She listened to it yesterday. We got on the phone this morning, talked for about 20 minutes about what we could take from that podcast and use. So I think as a coach, you know, whether it's with your staff or it's with your peers or even with your team, get your total immersion learning experience. I would love to help you with that by coming to campus or having you come see me in Texas. Get your spaced repetition and then have your accountability partner in your growth plan to help you become more. Because if you want more as a coach, you got to become more. What's your next step? We gave you a lot of them. I would say head over to briancane.com slash podcast. Listen to our softball podcasts that are on there as well. And then contact me through briancane.com because I would love the privilege and the opportunity to serve you and your program. Well, Brian, thanks so much. We appreciate you and, and your service and commitment to the NFCA and the things we do as well as our member coaches. So, again, thank you for joining us today, for giving some insight on this postseason push, a big time of year for a lot of coaches. Thank you, and uh, best of luck for your teams too as they compete toward the end here and hope you have a, a great rest of your week. Oh, thank you so much. It was a privilege and honor to, to be on the podcast. and. Uh, best of luck to the coaches that are listening to this, not only in this postseason, but for the rest of your career. Just take it one day, one pitch at a time. Anything I can do, please let me know.